0: We have also arranged things so that almost no one understands science and technology. This is a prescription for disaster. We might get away with it for a while, but sooner or later this combustible mixture of ignorance and power is going to blow up in our faces. Carl Sagan. This podcast... ...concerns matters that share three criteria. One, they have the potential to cause us great harm. Two, they are often misunderstood by the public. And three, they may be less likely to destroy us... ...if we understand them a little better. Any opinions expressed here are mine. I bring these matters to your attention... ...in the hope that you'll be motivated to further your understanding through personal research and through honest, open discussion among your peers. Death by Ignorance does not contain profanity. It does, however, present content that may be disturbing to some listeners. The material is intended for a mature audience and may be inappropriate for younger listeners. And this particular episode has some especially revolting bits. Death by Ignorance, episode 6, Venereal Disease. Fun facts for the whole family. There is nothing funny about sexually transmitted disease. Until now, at least. I'm doing this episode because of a question asked by one of my listeners. His name is Joe. I know the names of all four of my listeners. He wanted to know why all my podcasts are such downers. He asked if I couldn't lighten it up a bit. You know, less hopeless negativism, less existential angst. Can't you do something upbeat with a sprinkling of dry humor? Maybe do one on a fun disease, something infectious. So here you have it, the clap, the clam, the deadliest catch, the gift that keeps giving, crotch crickets, and the pox. That's what we'll be talking about today, and I'll do my level best to avoid slipping deeper into the venereal vernacular as it were, but it will be hard, with terms like yuck junk, glenbeck, bieber fever, pain at the pump, and dirt chicken all but begging to be shouted from the rooftops. (music) Venereal disease is a somewhat passe term for a group of infections that are commonly spread by close intimate contact, whether that be vaginal, anal, or oral intercourse most commonly, though certainly not exclusively. Hence, the etymological nod to Venus, the Roman goddess of the canker sore. Today, these afflictions are more commonly grouped together as STDs, Sexually Transmitted Diseases, or STIs, Sexually Transmitted Infections. These infections are caused by bacteria in the case of gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia, by viruses in genital herpes, hepatitis B, human papilloma virus, and HIV by parasites, trichomoniasis, and by things that really do look like tiny alien killer robots, scabies, and the aforementioned crotch crickets or crabs. Many of these afflictions can also be spread by non-sexual contact, such as through breastfeeding, childbirth, and by playing chess. STDs are very common, and have a tendency to cluster in certain settings where sexually active individuals congregate, like colleges, retirement communities, cruise ships, and Bonnaroo, for example. In 2017, there were 2.3 million reported cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis in the United States, according to a study by the CDC, who I trust. That's the highest rate ever seen in this country. And if you thought I was kidding about the retirement communities, I wasn't. The age group with the most alarming recent increases in STD infection rates are the over-60s. In fact, between 2014 and 2017, the combined rates of herpes, gonorrhea, syphilis, hepatitis B, trichomoniasis, and chlamydia in Americans 60 and older, increased by a breathtaking 23 percent. That is a lot of pus. The kids who were letting it all hang out during the summer of love, or a year later at Woodstock, are almost 70 today. And I bet it doesn't take much more than hearing a scratchy version of Janis Joplin's "Work me lord from down the hall to get their blood flowing down at the shady pines. And remember, it was back in the 60s that American youth culture was transformed by the simultaneous explosions of an anti-war movement, radically new music, and freely available psychedelics. Then toss in the newly discovered contraceptive pill and a generous dose of the newly discovered antibiotics that could dry up every drip and scab over every sore in a twinkling. Is it any wonder then that America's puritanical approach to the ways of the flesh was gone in a flash? But the times, they are a-changing. These veterans of the sexual revolution may not have lost their taste for a little slap and tickle after bingo on a Tuesday evening, but the antibiotics that could be counted on to pull the fat of every Casanova and Enamorata from the fire have been a-changing too. No longer can we take for granted the susceptibility to antibiotics of most of today's STD-causing microbes. As recently as 12 years ago, clinicians had five different classes of antibiotics from which they could choose when treating gonorrhea. But that was then and this is now. There is only one remaining first-line treatment that the CDC recommends for treating gonorrhea in 2019. And even that calls for a powerful combination of two different antibiotics, azithromycin and ceftriaxone, neither of which existed in the summer of love. When resistance to this combination emerges, as it most surely will, we'll have nothing in reserve. And what will become of bingo night then? And that's just the bacterial diseases, those caused by a virus, herpes, hepatitis B, human papillomavirus, and HIV have never been curable, though treatments exist for controlling each of the illnesses. We'll get up close and personal with these diseases shortly. I mentioned how common STDs are here in the U.S., but to get a feel for how humongous this problem is globally, listen to these statistics. There were 1.1 billion, that's with a B, STDs reported in 2015 alone. And that doesn't include cases of HIV. And more than 100,000 people died from these infections. Again, not including HIV. So in any year, that's a ton of people you might not want to reach out to on Tinder. Add to that the fact that many of these diseases can have extended incubation periods before symptoms develop but are already highly contagious. We can expect to see another 500 million plus cases of genital herpes and 290 million plus cases of HPV in this coming year. Before I get into all the gory details about how each of these pudendal pathogens can ruin your spring break, let's take a peek at how we got here. How long have STDs been around? It has been proposed by one professor, Franjo Gruber of Croatia, that there exists evidence in the form of ancient Egyptian papyri and Mesopotamian stone tablet inscriptions that all was not well under the loincloths of ancient civilizations. But frankly, calling this evidence may be a little bit of a stretch. I have looked at some pictures of these ancient stone tablets, and frankly, it looks almost identical to one of the concrete steps at my own back door, and I know for a fact that the original owner of this house was neither Egyptian nor Mesopotamian. I think she was from Florida. It wasn't until the first decades of the common era that coherent and revoltingly specific descriptions of genital infectious diseases were recorded in the poems of poets Ovid and later Juvenal and the Greek physicians Celsus and Galen. I get why the doctors of the day might have had something to say about afflicted junk, but how would the most... Creative poet work uh, vaginal drainage into his poem, unless, of course, it was Ovid that invented the first limerick. Remember Aquilius Gallus, he had a magnificent palace. His scortum dropped by with a glint in her eye and left him with spots on his. Well, you get the idea. Poetry has come a long way since Marcus Aurelius. But in these days of enlightenment, it was believed that there was only one venereal disease and that every leaky pustule, malodorous discharge and necrotic chancre afflicting Celsus's obscene parts was clear evidence of divine retribution. After Galen came up with the quaint term gonorrhea from the Greek for the flow of semen, the issue, forgive the pun, was put on the back burner for a few hundred years. Indian and Chinese physicians were also taking note of these disconcerting illnesses, but besides killing off a great many sufferers with their bogus curatives, they didn't make much progress either. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that European and Arabic physicians began to take a keen interest in the to the pustules, erosions, shankers and discharges of the day. It was during these heady days of pudendal probing that it was first recognized that there may have been a link between sexual activity and the spread of these afflictions. But with communal baths on every corner, a nice big war every weekend, and the soaring, a much better pun I think, popularity of prostitution, the civilized world had an uphill struggle ahead. One disease that was commonly transmitted by sexual contact in medieval Europe was leprosy. A great deal has been written about the relationship between venereal leprosy and the church's interpretation of such illnesses as a product of sexual sin. In the 14th century, an English physician by the name of John of Gaddiston recommended the following treatment for men who, in the heat of the moment, I hope, decided to have intercourse with a leprous prostitute. First, he must cleanse his penis with his own urine, or failing that, a mixture of vinegar and water. Next, he should submit to intensive bleeding by a phlebotomist. And lastly, he should adhere to a 90-day course of purgation, ointments, and medicaments. If the gentleman in question was aware of this course of therapy in advance, I can only surmise that the leprous prostitute must have been quite a looker. Seriously. For a leprous prostitute, that is. The medical texts of the 12th and 13th centuries described some very interesting remedies for those whose genitals failed to respond to a good urine scrub, some bleeding and a ton of greasy ointment. This cure is taken from the Trotula, a medical compendium of the time, and I quote, Men who suffer swelling of the virile member, having there and under the preface many holes, and they suffer lesions. We're advised to apply a poultice to reduce swelling before, and I quote again, we wash the ulcerous and wounded neck of the preppos with warm water and sprinkle on it powder of Greek pitch and dry rot of wood or of worms and rose and root of mullion and bilberry. Okay, fair enough, I suppose. I think... The men of the day would try literally anything if it meant avoiding a visit with English Surgeon John of Ardern, who described one of his cases as follows. The man's yard began to swell after coitus. Due to the falling of his own sperm, whereof he suffered great grievousness of burning and aching as men do when they are so hurt. His treatment of this sad chap consisted of cutting away the dead flesh with a blade and applying quicklime. The good surgeon did go on to state that the man was cured, but without specifying if he was cured of his venereal disease or of his taste for leprous prostitutes. But besides these medical treatises, there wasn't a great deal written on the subject. But that's probably because they had so much other stuff to worry about back then. In the Middle Ages, people had so many other interesting ways to die. So much pestilence and squalor, violence and hardship. It's hard to imagine that the occasional itch in the nether regions made much of an impact. And when most were only likely to catch sight of their rotting privates for a fleeting moment during their annual cold water bath, it's no wonder venereal disease remained something of an afterthought. As the decades ticked by, gonorrhea and syphilis were making their way to every corner of the planet in the breeches of intrepid explorers like Columbus and Cook. Some scholars believe that were it not for the contributions of Captain Cook and his crews, gonorrhea may never have been given the opportunity to leave Tahiti and set up shop in New Zealand. I rather suspect it would have happened sooner or later, with or without the good captain. In the 14th century, those feared afflictions morphed into political and social forces to be reckoned with. As the long-term sequelae of these mysterious maladies were recognized probably they were talking about the crippling brain and nerve damage resulting from untreated syphilis, every segment of society was terrorized. As the fear escalated, highly visible scandals brought down the powerful while the rest of society hidden from view suffered in silence. John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster in the 14th century, brought dishonor on his family when it was learned that he had died of putrefaction of his genitals and body, caused by the frequenting of women, for he was a great fornicator. Interestingly, the medical consensus in medieval Europe held that celibacy posed a serious threat to the health of young men. It was further believed that the retention of semen would lead to headaches, anxiety, weight loss, and ultimately, death. This caused substantial confusion as the church held fast to celibacy as a spiritual virtue of great value. The most famous victim of sexual abstinence must have been King Louis VIII of France. Devoted to his wife, he remained celibate while leading his troops in the Albigensian Crusades from 1209 to 1229. Ambrios, a Norman poet of the time, Uh, went a little overboard, I think, in this verse, claiming that a hundred thousand people died of celibacy during that war. And here's his poem. By famine and by malady, more than three thousand were struck down at the siege of Acre and in the town. But in pilgrims' hearing, I declare, a hundred thousand men die there, because from women they abstained. Twas for God's love that they restrained themselves, that He had not perished thus, had they not been abstemious. That is literally the worst poem I have ever heard, including my Limerick: "A Pox on Ambryos. But for those men who calculated that the abstemious life was the best way to avoid penile putrefaction, there was another challenge to face. That of sexual desire. Anaphrodisiacs were popular. I'm not sure why. And one of the best was a tea made from rue, which is an evergreen shrub. It was valued for its ability to, as a physician of the time wrote, dry out the sperm and kill the desire for intercourse, a role that would be filled 600 years later by Fox News. According to a 14th century Dominican friar, Albertus Magnus, an aphrodisiac could have prevented the untimely death of one of his lustful monks who, having desired a beautiful woman 70 times before Matins, died. His autopsy revealed that his brain had shrunk to the size of a pomegranate and that his eyes had been destroyed. Until the late 18th century, this damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't paradox hung over the affairs of civilized men and women and not much else changed. A number of creative cures were introduced, each one more toxic than the one before, with sulfur, arsenic, and mercury becoming perennial favorites. Mercury held particular promise until the syphilis-free patients began to drop like flies from mercury poisoning. Well, at least we tried. Everything changed in 1910 with the discovery of azphenamine, branded with the name Salvasan, and the first effective treatment for syphilis. Salvasan was a real medical breakthrough, an arsenical with activity against Treponema pallidum, the spirochetal bacterium responsible for syphilis. Besides being an effective treatment, the process by which Arsphenamine was discovered changed the future of pharmaceutical research. A highly toxic compound of arsenic, atoxil, showed strong activity against the spirochete, but it poisoned the patient. So, the lab of chemistry pioneer Paul Elric began testing hundreds of slightly modified chemical compounds, all originating from the arsenical atoxil, until one was found to be less toxic to patients while exhibiting activity against the microbe. This was the first line of treatment for syphilis until Alexander Fleming's discovery, penicillin, was introduced for clinical use in 1941. In a stroke, bacterial venereal disease was brought under control and humanity's relationship to these powerful pathogens changed forever. Or so we thought. And the rest is largely history the way we opened this discussion with diseases that are better understood every day and treatments that threaten to become less effective every day. So what other nasties are being traded around campus these days? Here are a few of the conditions you might want to be aware of. Bacterial vaginosis. This is an interesting condition in women that is characterised by the replacement of the normal vaginal bacteria, lactobacillus species mostly, by a host of other germs including anaerobic bacteria with names like Prevotella and Mobiluncus, the first of which, by the way, sounds far too much like a popular chocolate hazelnut spread. Urea, plasma, giardia, and mycoplasma also get in on the fun, and together this witch's brew generates some seriously noxious vapors. It is mostly asymptomatic, but carries an increased risk for HIV, herpes simplex virus, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. The illness is associated with having multiple partners of either sex, and not using condoms. It's also been tied to douching. It responds well to treatment with antibiotics and topical gels or creams. And the reason most people get it treated is to prevent the more serious infections that it increases the risk of contracting. Parasites. There are a couple of parasites that are worthy of attention. One is Scabies, and the other is Pediculosis pubis, which sets up shop in the pubic region and is commonly known as the crabs. Although there are dozens of other informal names, most of which are either descriptive of the hideous little arthropods, or the intense and maddening itch they cause. Scabies, caused by bugs in the Sarcoptes genus, is also an itchy infestation but that one can occur all over the body. They love to burrow into the skin between fingers and toes and into other warm fleshy body folds. They're effectively treated by topical medications but you also have to get them out of your clothes, your bed linens, your sex partners and your parachutes. I made up the parachutes one. Pelvic inflammatory disease, commonly known as PID. This is not itself a venereal disease. It actually covers several different infections in the upper reproductive tracts of females. Salpingitis, tubo-ovarian abscesses, pelvic peritonitis and endometriosis are the more specific terms. But I bring up PID, because the germs causing these infections are the same as those that cause gonorrhea, bacteria in the Neisseria genus, and chlamydia. But I hasten to add that there are literally dozens of other microbes that call the vagina home that are also known to cause PID. While some cases of PID may be quite mild, it can also be a very serious illness requiring hospitalization, IV antibiotics, and occasionally even surgery. It's easy to confuse with other types of abdominal infection and can occasionally lead to a misdiagnosis of a condition like appendicitis. There is a correlation between PID and both gonorrhea and chlamydia infections, so in most cases treatment of male partners who may not be symptomatic is also recommended. There's quite a bit of confusion about the relationship between IUDs and Pelvic Inflammatory Disease, but the most recent research suggests that IUD-related PID is rarely seen more than three weeks after the device is placed. But obviously, these and all other matters related to, to your particular case should be discussed with your physician. Epididymitis. This is one for the guys. It's an infection of a stack of tiny tubes that sit coiled up on top of each testicle. The infection is caused by the same germs often implicated in PID and the ones that cause gonorrhea and chlamydia. It can be spread by intercourse with an infected partner of either sex, but in older men, it's more often the result of other problems, like enlargement of the prostate gland, and it can be a very painful condition that usually responds pretty well to antibiotic treatment. When it doesn't improve or if it comes right back, it can be a sign of a more serious condition caused by the same microbe that causes tuberculosis. So, because of the germs involved, the man's sex partner or partners will usually also be treated. Anogenital warts These charming little blighters are caused by a number of different strains of the human papillomavirus. Most of the time they're non-cancerous, but in about 10% of cases, usually in people with underlying conditions like HIV, they carry a risk of becoming malignant. Most of the time they appear in or on the genitals or in and around the anus, but they can also crop up in the nose, the mouth, with some even appearing in the throat or on the covering of the eyeball. Sometimes the warts disappear without treatment, sometimes they don't. There are a number of different treatments that are used, but none appear to be significantly better than the others. The treating doctor will consider factors like where the warts are, their size, the health of the patient before recommending a specific treatment. As you've probably figured out, there are a lot of different infections or infestations that can be acquired through sexual contact. None of them are something you want to pick up. I haven't mentioned all of the infections because this isn't really the purpose of the conversation, And obviously, I'm not here to give medical advice. One does not take medical advice from a podcast, ever. The purpose behind this talk is to make people aware of a very common but infrequently discussed problem. There are tons of very good resources out there and places you can go to learn more about each of these distressing and often socially difficult conditions. I'll put some links in the show notes to guide your further reading. What can we do then, as ordinary individuals, to decrease the likelihood that will become a venereal statistic? Most of the recommendations are pretty much a matter of common sense. Abstinence is always the most effective way to avoid STDs. That's not usually the answer people are wanting to hear. So, once celibacy is off the table, because nobody wants their brain to shrink to the size of a pomegranate, right? It comes down to risk containment. Here are a few recommendations straight from the CDC. Some of these are obvious, others not so much. The original article is linked below, so read it. Never have unprotected sex unless both of you have only been with each other and you both tested negative for STDs at least six months ago. Otherwise, or if in doubt, always use a condom, preferably one made of latex, and if needed, use a water-based lubricant to avoid tearing the condom. But don't forget that even when used properly, condoms are not 100% effective, either at preventing pregnancy or disease. The next recommendation is one of the more obvious ones. Avoid having sex with a partner who has sores, rashes, discharge, or warts down below. Even with a condom. You're not in medieval England anymore, Tonto. Wash before and after sex. And that means using soap and water. A good, thorough wash. Next... Talk to your doctor about the human papillomavirus vaccine. And while you're there, ask about the hepatitis B vaccine, because yep, you can get that from sex, too. If you haven't been, get tested for HIV. It's good to know. And lastly, be aware that the risks of sharing a sexually transmitted disease, not to mention the risks of just about every other bad thing we do to ourselves goes through the roof when we're drunk or high. If you have questions about this, talk to your doctor about it. Well, before pulling the plug on this jolly banter, I just wanted to say a couple of things about sex education. It ties into my education rant in episode 5, but despite the certain impact on my blood pressure, it needs repeating. In many respects, the state of education in this country is abysmal. The state of sex education is even worse. A lot's been written about this subject, about the dangers of withholding important guidance or pumping our children's heads full of nonsense. But precious little is being done about it. And with this administration's latest budget-gutting measures, it is surely going to get worse. The United States has one of the highest STD and teen pregnancy rates in the developed world. Yet, less than half of the states in this country require sex education in school. How is that even possible in 2019? Some of the states that do require it don't have any requirements that the information given out is either useful or accurate. Shame on Alabama, Florida, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, Alaska, Washington, Idaho, Colorado, Kansas, Arkansas, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Iowa, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Arizona. Rhode Island, and Indiana. These states do not require our children to be provided with even basic sex education. You know, unimportant stuff like how not to get AIDS or not to have babies when you're 13. How the hell is this a responsible position? It gets worse. Only 18 states require students to be told about contraception. A grand total of 13 states require that the information given to kids about sex and HIV be medically accurate. Then, of course, there are 37 states that require that abstinence is taught if any sex education is provided. And 27 of those states mandate that abstinence must be stressed when sex education is provided. Twelve states mandate that sex education include discussion of sexual orientation, but only nine of them mandate that all sexual orientations should be mentioned. In the other three states, they can just pick which orientations they disapprove of less. And it gets even more shameful. Alabama Texas, and South Carolina mandate that only negative information about sexual orientation be provided. 48 states are allowed to use sex education classes to promote a specific religion, and 37 states allow parents to opt out of sex education for their children. This is the kind of institutionalized ignorance that makes me pessimistic about our civilization's chances for survival. I shudder to think what is actually being taught in some of these states. Well, I blew it, didn't I? It was supposed to be an upbeat chat about ulcerated vulvas and putrefying penises and... Things were going so well. But before I go, I want to pass on one important update to any of you who are done with the drip, bored with the buboes, sick of the sores, weary with the warts, and past the pruritus. There are now officially only three sex positions that are known to reduce the risk of STD transmission. The going-to-a-movie position, the playing Monopoly position, and the driving over to the in-laws position. The hanging out at the mall position, long considered one of the safest, can no longer be recommended, thanks to Alabama's former Chief Justice, Roy Moore. Good night.